my name is Ronnie Grayer, and this is the Monthly Safety Podcast for July of 2013. First, a little bit about me. I've been a Greyhound driver now for the past 22 years. I've been in the driver instructor program for the past eight, and I currently drive out of Syracuse, New York. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, welcome. Welcome, new listeners. I'll give more information about how to both listen to and download previous episodes uh, at the end. So it's been several months since we've spoken, and I've got a lot of topics I'd like to discuss. So I'll get right into it. First thing I want to talk about is the change in how we log our short stops. More specifically, I'm going to read from a safe side bulletin from June of this year, June of 2013. And it reads, um, two-year waiver. The Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration has provided an exemption on hours of service, driver's record of duty status, 395.8, to regular route passenger carriers. This exemption is effective as of May 31st, 2013. This interpretation will affect the way that all Greyhound and Bolt drivers complete their logs when it comes to short stops of 10 minutes or less on regular route service. The exemption is for two years and reads in part, FMCSA announces its decision to grant regular route passenger carriers and their drivers an exemption from the hours of service record of duty status requirement to enter a change in duty status on the daily log for breaks in driving of 10 minutes or less for the limited purpose of picking up or dropping off passengers, baggage, or small express packages. Such activities will not be considered a change of duty status for the purposes of 49 CFR 395.8 Section C. This means we can now log short stops on regular runs the way we have been doing it since 1996. So what does this mean? Well, for the past two years, we have had to indicate every time we've stopped while driving on our log, and if that stop was less than 15 minutes, we had to indicate how long we stopped for and indicate the name of the city. We did something called a flag. It was very tedious, very involved. It crowded up the log and made things difficult. And now we've gone back to the system of if we stop while driving for a period of 10 minutes or less, we do not need to update the driver's daily log. I'll say that again. If you are driving and you stop driving for a period of 10 minutes or less, you do not need to update your log to show that stop. Now, if that stop was for a period of time of more than 10 minutes, for example, 11 minutes and greater, then you would need to indicate a change of duty status on the driver's daily log, including what time that stop was to the nearest quarter hour and indicating the name of the city and state where that duty status change occurred. So again, if we stop for 10 minutes or less, we do not need to update our log to reflect that stop. And if the stop is more than 10 minutes, then we will need to change our duty status. And again, just to reinforce it, we log to the nearest quarter hour. Cell phones. Cell phones seem to consume a good portion of some people's daily lives and daily activities, and they can be a real problem when driving. And we all know that here at Greyhound, and certainly as professional drivers, we do not use our cell phones while we drive. Whether or not we have a hands-free device, we certainly do not make and receive phone calls, send and receive text messages. Certainly we do not take photographs while driving and things like that. And that's been a company rule for quite a while and it just makes good sense. Even if state and local laws permit you to use a hands-free device, uh, we won't do that. Now I wanted to talk about the New York state law because I've got something that kind of summarizes that, so I'll read from it. What is the law on cell phone use while you operate a vehicle in New York State? 
New York State has a law that does not allow you to use a handheld mobile telephone while you drive. If you use a handheld mobile telephone while you drive, except to call 911 or to contact medical, fire, or police personnel about an emergency, you can receive a traffic ticket and pay a maximum fine of $100 and mandatory surcharges and fees of up to $85. For offenses committed between October 5, 2011 and May 31, 2013, this violation carries three driver violation points. For offenses committed on or after June 1, 2013, this violation carries five driver violation points. To expand on that, let's talk about text messaging. What is the law on texting while you operate a vehicle in New York State? New York State law prohibits all drivers from using portable electronic devices, such as cell phones and smartphones, to send text messages or emails while driving. The penalty for a violation of this law is a fine of up to $150, plus mandatory surcharges and fees of up to $85. For offenses committed between October 5, 2011 and May 31, 2013, this violation carries three driver violation points. For offenses committed on or after June 1, 2013, this violation carries five driver violation points. So these are very serious things in terms of your driving record. We also know that there is federal legislation in place to address these things, and they cover both talking and texting on a handheld telephone for commercial drivers of buses and trucks, 10,000 pounds or more. And basically, those laws prescribe fines of up to $2,750 per offense if you get caught talking or texting. So let's just not do that. When you drive, the best thing to do, and I advise all drivers, is to turn your phone off before you start to drive, or you can always do something called airplane mode. And that disables all the features of the phone and makes it a standalone device because we all know that if your phone vibrates while you're driving or if it rings while you're driving you're going to be likely to reach for it see what's going on and at that point you put yourself in a very bad position so let's stay away from the phones while we drive it'll be much better that way if you need to make or receive a call or something along those lines go ahead and find a safe place to stop get off the roadway and then you can go ahead and do that I'd like to take a few minutes to talk about proper logging. There seems to be some confusion about logging with some drivers, so we'll go ahead and talk about that. I've got a safety bulletin from July, from this month of 2013, that talks about proper logging. There is some confusion on when a driver should log driving and on duty not driving. You are to log your current duty status at all times. That means what your actual status is and not what your future status will be. On duty time means all time from the time a driver begins to work or is required to be in readiness to work or until the driver is relieved from work and all responsibility from performing work. On-duty time shall include all time at a plant, terminal, facility, or other property of a motor carrier or shipper or on any public property waiting to be dispatched unless the driver has been relieved from duty by the motor carrier, all time inspecting, servicing, or conditioning any commercial motor vehicle at any time, all time loading or unloading a commercial motor vehicle, supervising or assisting in the loading or unloading, attending a commercial motor vehicle being loaded or unloaded, remaining in readiness to operate the commercial motor vehicle, or in giving or receiving receipts for shipments loaded or unloaded, all time repairing, obtaining assistance, or remaining in attendance upon a disabled commercial motor vehicle, all time spent providing a breath sample or urine specimen, including travel time to and from the collection site to comply with the random, reasonable suspicion, post-crash, 
or follow-up testing required by Part 382 of this subchapter when directed by a motor carrier, performing any other work in the capacity, employ, or service of a motor carrier, and performing any compensated work for a person who is not a motor carrier. All driving time is defined in the term driving time. Driving time means all time spent at the driving controls of a commercial motor vehicle in operation. Also, please remember to press hard to ensure all copies of your log are legible. We have had some issues uh, with the logs here at Greyhound. The yellow copy that stays in the driver's book has not been legible, has not been clear, uh, and oftentimes that is because either the uh, flap that prevents you from writing through too many pages is in the wrong place, or more likely the driver has not pressed hard enough to allow that ink to go through. So please ensure that you press hard when you complete your logs that you have legible yellow copies in your book. Obviously we need to turn in our logs on a daily basis at our home terminals. If you are gone overnight then obviously you will not turn those in but you should not be accumulating multiple logs in your book. Each time you come through your home terminal you need to turn in that log in the appropriate area and at the end of the month you must turn in a copy of your monthly recap. That is a Greyhound requirement even though it is not required by the DOT you must turn in a copy of the monthly recap so please ensure that you do. Also let's talk a little bit more about the logs in terms of maximum hours of service. The DOT safety regulations part 395 specify the maximum hours a driver can drive. Driving time is all the time spent at the driving controls of a commercial motor vehicle in operation. Maximum driving time is as follows. No more than 10 hours following 8 consecutive hours off-duty. Cannot drive for any period after having been on duty 15 hours following 8 consecutive hours of off-duty. And no driver shall drive for any period after having been on duty 70 hours in any period of 8 consecutive days. Now there's something called adverse driving conditions. That's in Part 395.1. And that is defined as follows. A driver who encounters adverse driving conditions and cannot, because of those conditions, safely complete the run within the 10-hour maximum driving time, may drive for not more than two additional hours to complete the run or to reach a place of safety for the occupants of the vehicle. The additional two-hour provision applies only to the 10-hour maximum driving time. What that means is you cannot use those additional two hours if they would cause you to go over on your 15 or your 70-hour limits. The two hours cannot circumvent or supersede the 15 and 70 hour limit. Adverse driving conditions means snow, sleet, fog, or other adverse weather conditions, a highway covered with snow or ice, or unusual road and traffic conditions, none of which were apparent on the basis of information known to the person dispatching the run at the time it was begun. So what are some common questions regarding on-duty driving time? May a driver use the adverse driving conditions exception if he has accumulated driving time and on-duty not driving time that would put the driver over 15 hours or over 70 hours in eight consecutive days? And as I said earlier, the answer is no, no, no. The adverse driving conditions exception only applies to the 10-hour rule. Another question that comes up frequently is when a driver experiences the delay on an impassable highway should the time he or she is delayed be entered on the record of duty status as driving time or on duty not driving? And the answer is that delays on impassable highways must be recorded as driving time 
because Part 395.2 defines driving time as all time spent at the driving controls of a commercial motor vehicle in operation. Now, if you have additional questions about the hours of service rules, please don't hesitate to contact your supervisor or your local driver instructor or the safety department because this is very important. Uh, going over your hours of service is a very serious thing, and we don't want that to happen. That can result in fines and being put out of service and customer service failures and all kinds of things. So it's up to each individual driver to maintain your log, to be current to the last change of duty status, and please do not log ahead. A good example is a regular driver comes to work and brings their log up to the current time when they sign on, when they report for work, and they go ahead and show their on-duty not driving time, typically for 30 minutes, and bring that line up to driving, and they haven't even begun or completed their pre-trip inspection. Please do not do that. Do not log ahead. You bring yourself over to your last change of duty status. In this case, the driver would have gone from off-duty to on-duty not driving at their sign-on time, and then just before starting to drive, you would then bring the line across in the on-duty not driving section, typically, but not always, 30 minutes, and then make a vertical line up to driving, and then your log would be current to the last change of duty status. So again, please don't log ahead, and please keep it current as you go through the day. Don't wait until the end of the day to update your log. I'd like to talk a little bit about space management, and more specifically, overhead clearances. Now, we all know that Many people use portable electronic GPS devices. They can be a very helpful tool for some. But here at Greyhound, and when we drive commercial vehicles, we should not be using those devices at all. They should not be installed in the bus. We should not be using them, whether it's a standalone device or it's installed on your phone. We should be reading maps. We should be reading route guides. We should be reading road signs. And if you find yourself temporarily misrouted, because we never get lost, then you want to stop and either try to figure out where you're at, ask a passenger, or make a phone call. But please do not use portable electronic GPS navigation devices. And this is prohibited by company rule and for good reason. Now we have people that say, well, my GPS device has software for commercial vehicles. And although that can be the case, we don't know if it's updated and there's no substitute for your eyes and looking at what's in front of you because sometimes when a commercial vehicle strikes a low bridge it can be comical and sometimes it can be downright deadly. And I'm going to talk about several instances now of commercial vehicles striking low overpasses. Now recently in Syracuse, uh, earlier this month, a truck struck a bridge, a railroad bridge, that is struck several times a year. And I'm going to read this article from Syracuse.com. Several times a year, a large truck tries to drive under the West Genesee Railroad Bridge with an 11-foot-6 clearance. Thursday morning, this happens again to this truck. Um, a tractor trailer struck a railroad bridge Thursday morning, closing part of Erie Boulevard West, Syracuse Police said. Around 8.20 a.m., a 2007 Volvo tractor registered to Brighton Logistics was headed eastbound when it hit the railroad bridge in the 1400 block of West Genesee Street. The tractor trailer was carrying plastics police said. The driver of the vehicle was not injured in the crash. The area is clearly marked with signs prohibited trucks through the area, police said. The driver said he was following GPS instructions and is not familiar with the area. So there you go. If you find yourself in an unfamiliar area, well, the first thing that you need to do is to start really zeroing in on the signs and trying to see if you can figure out where you need to go and certainly watching for things like overhead clearances, 
weight limits, restrictions on large vehicles, dead-end streets, narrow streets, things along those lines. We need to be extremely careful when you're in unfamiliar areas. So again, if you find yourself in an unfamiliar area, you want to be careful if you need to stop and gather your thoughts, if you need to make a phone call, do those things before you get yourself in trouble because, again, sometimes these things can have deadly results, which I'll talk about in just a minute. Now, uh, earlier this month also, there was a megabus that struck an overpass in Manhattan, actually at the bus terminal in New York, and caused a real problem in the morning. I'm going to read from NBC for New York. A double-decker bus with 66 passengers on board hit an overpass in Manhattan on Tuesday, snarling morning traffic near the Lincoln Tunnel. The bus, which had left Pittsburgh Monday night, struck the overpass on the 40th Street ramp of the inbound tunnel at about 7.45 a.m., causing inbound delays of up to 45 minutes. Port Authority said the driver was issued a ticket and two people were treated at the scene for minor injuries. Megabus spokesman said the driver has been placed out of service until an investigation is completed. The company apologizes for any inconvenience to all affected by the delays near the terminal. Passenger and their luggage were transported to the intended final stop at 28th Street and 7th Avenue. And this was actually a pretty serious thing because now you've got, you're going up a ramp and you can't fit, obviously, and there's a significant difference in the height of the overhead versus the height of the bus. I believe that overhead was about 11, 4, 11, 6, and that bus is 13 feet, 2 inches high. So that's a real problem. Then you've got to back down the ramp. And to add on to that, we've got the Megabus uh, serious crash in Syracuse uh, three years ago where four people were killed. And I'm going to read here because this thing has finally been settled. Um, from the Syracuse newspaper, at least six lawsuits have been settled, including one for $3.1 million over a double-decker megabus crash that killed four people on Onondaga Lake Parkway. Um, one person settled her lawsuit against megabus in 2012, two years after the September 11, 2010 early morning crash, into the Low Railroad Bridge over the parkway. Uh, and it goes on to talk about settlement amounts and things like that, but the bottom line is that Four people were killed and several others injured, including the driver who was seriously injured when a 13-foot-2 double-decker bus tried to drive under a 10-foot-9-inch bridge. I'm going to read a little more from the article here. Um, the facts of the case, including the driver being distracted by his personal GPS device instead of paying attention to road signs, made the question of negligence a non-issue. Uh, the bottom line is what I said to the mediator. A bus ran into a bridge. Not supposed to happen. The bus driver went by multiple signs warning that there was a low bridge and he crashed into it. I should have a thousand cases like this. This is from the attorney for um, the plaintiffs, obviously. And the driver uh, was acquitted of criminally negligent homicide last year. After the verdict, he expressed his sympathy for the victims and their families. Despite the acquittal, he'll have to live with the tragedy for the rest of uh, his life. Now in the article it talks about uh, the driver. He told police he'd taken a wrong turn and was using his personal GPS to try to get back on track. Using a personal GPS was against Megabus policy. The drivers only used the bus's GPS, which takes into account bridges that are too low for tall buses to drive under. The claim that he was looking at his personal GPS rather than the company supplied GPS. Personal GPS's don't take into account the heights of bridges and any clearance issues. The NTSB investigated the crash and released its findings last week at the request of the newspaper. Its reports show that two months before the crash, this driver had taken a course with Megabus entitled 
high clearance awareness. The NTSB found that the driver drove past at least nine warning signs on the parkway, including three that had flashing amber lights and one with flashing white strobe lights. The bridge had orange reflective tape across the bottom support beam. Of the 28 passengers aboard, 20 were injured. After the crash, investigators found the power cord connected to the driver's cigarette lighter and a personal GPS device outside the bus. He told police he didn't break because the crash, quote, happened without warning. One passenger told investigators he'd ridden with this driver behind the wheel two other times and found him to be a good driver. After the crash, he had been heard, the driver had been overheard asking, what happened and where are we? Now, he told investigators, this driver did, that he'd driven the route about 20 times before. His driver's log showed he'd made the trip four or five times in just the previous three weeks, according to the NTSB. He told investigators he was lost, and as a result, may have been distracted while he was listening to his GPS. The FMCSA conducted a compliance review of Megabus after the crash and gave it a satisfactory rating. Um, so the bottom line is that this was a terrible tragedy that could have been averted. Striking an overhead bridge is a very serious and always preventable type of incident. This is a fixed object. The bridge doesn't move. And like I always say to people, the bridge is always going to win. So please watch your overhead clearances. And most of the time, if you're on a regular run, if you follow the prescribed route, we shouldn't run into these problems unless there is a detour or some type of a deviation from the regular route. That's why these routes are planned out the way that they are. Another topic that I feel is very important and doesn't get enough attention is terminal speed limit. Because of the congestion around our terminals and commission agencies, you are confronted by a greater number of hazards and accident-producing situations. To reduce the risk of an accident, Greyhound sets a 5 mile per hour speed limit at all company properties and agencies. This 5 mile per hour limit gives you more time and space to take action to avoid an accident. Five miles per hour may seem like you are crawling, but consider the following. When encountering an unexpected hazard, your reaction time on average will be not three quarters of a second, but 1.5 seconds. At five miles per hour, you, your vehicle will travel 10.5 feet while you are moving your foot to the brake, plus the distance to brake to a stop. At 10 miles per hour, you will travel 21.9 feet before hitting the brake and then brake to a stop. A five mile per hour difference in speed can be the difference between having an accident or not. If a bus is moving faster than the speed of somebody walking, you are going too fast. Please be safe and protect our customers and fellow employees. And this comes to us courtesy of Al Smith, Corporate Director of Safety. Thank you, Al. Although I've talked about this several times on the podcast, I'd like to talk about it again as during the summer now it's a busy time on the road and we're seeing lots of disabled and emergency vehicles. And this is entitled Courtesy to Emergency Vehicles. A professional driver knows that slow down and move over for emergency vehicles on the road is not just the law in many states, but it is also the right thing to do as a professional driver. Whenever you see an emergency vehicle stopped on the road or any vehicle stopped on the shoulder of the road, make sure you take the following actions. Size up the situation and begin slowing down. Check traffic conditions behind and alongside your bus as well as what is ahead so you know what moves you can safely make. If it is safe to do so, move over to give the emergency or stopped vehicle the widest possible berth. If you cannot move over safely, slow down at least 20 miles per hour below the speed limit. Be extra careful if emergency personnel or other people are standing around. 
Sound your horn if necessary to reduce the risk of someone stepping into your path. If the emergency vehicle is moving or approaching, always pull over and yield the right-of-way immediately. Be courteous to police and emergency personnel. Slow down and move over when encountering them. It's not just the law, but it's also the right thing to do and the mark of a truly professional driver. And in, in every state now that we operate in, there is a move-over law which requires that you do the things that we just mentioned. But even if it's a disabled vehicle or an emergency service vehicle or anything on the side of the road, it is a good idea to move over. And if you cannot move over, you need to slow down and sound your horn and use extreme caution. Lastly today, I'd like to read an article about Carl Wickman, who started Greyhound in 1914. And some of you may know some of this information, some may not. So I'm going to read this article. It's a little bit long, but I feel that it's enjoyable. In 1914, a laid-off miner named Carl Wickman opened a hubmobile dealership in Hibbing, Minnesota. When he couldn't make a sale in the Iron Range Village, he turned the seven-seat hub into a bus, ferrying his former workmates between the mines and their homes. From this humble start, Wickman created Greyhound Corporation, the iconic bus firm that opened up America's highways to the masses. A Swedish immigrant with an eye for profit, Wickman, who lived from 1887 until 1954, battled terrible roads, blizzards, and mechanical breakdowns in the early years. During the Great Depression, he nearly went bankrupt. But over the long haul, Wickman steered his company toward fame and profit, parlaying a two-mile route into one of the leading bus transport services in the country. He was a jovial man, said Carlton Jackson, author of Hounds of the Road, A History of the Greyhound Bus Company. But he was determined Minnesota was a rough place to start anything that had to do with transportation. He had to overcome a lot of obstacles. Wickman was born in a village near Morris, Sweden. At the urging of a friend, he left the Scandinavian country in 1905 to travel to Arizona. Just a teen, he used all his money for a train ticket from New York to Tucson, only to find that his friend had left town. Although he was broke, Wickman couldn't speak English and didn't know a soul. He managed to get a job at a sawmill. However, the Arizona sun was a little different from the Swedish sun. Meanwhile, he heard from a few of his friends who had gone directly to Minnesota, and the climate up there was more like Sweden. After saving enough money for the train fare, Wickman headed north to Hibbing, a rugged mining town with a pioneer flavor. After working the mines for years as a diamond drill operator, he was laid off in 1913. He was 26 and refused to sit still. He bought a Hupmobile dealership, and when he couldn't sell the seven-seat car, the precursor to the SUV, he began shuttling miners back and forth to work. The bus was an immediate hit with the miners, squeezing in any way they could. They sat on each other, stood on the running boards, clung to the back bumpers. Wickman charged 15 cents for a one-way trip and a quarter worth $6 now for the round trip. With gasoline selling for 4 cents a gallon, he made money. That was the upside. The downside was the conditions. His early drivers battled unpaved roads and Minnesota's freeze to deliver their passengers on time. Flapping curtains did little to keep out the snow. Blizzards made driving perilous and a flat tire could result in a miserable delay. In one instant, the snow was so deep that four men got out and walked. They said it was quicker. In something like the Wild West, in the beginning it was called the snooslein. Snus in Swedish means snuff. The person who wanted a ride would take out a snuff box and show it to the driver as he approached, and the driver would know that the man on the street wanted a ride. Of course, it was a little precarious to stay in the line of fire because there were a lot of people spitting, and if you weren't careful, you'd get a face full of snuff. After that first winter, Wickman had enough, enough of the drudgery, so he sold his interest in the company. But when the firm's men asked him back, offering to reduce his driving duties, he jumped back in. 
1915, their first, first full year, Wickman and his remaining partner, Andy Anderson, started 15-mile runs to Nashawak, Minnesota, creating the country's first regular intercity bus route. Their operation was on a roll. Demand was so high, they added cars. When those vehicles weren't enough, Wickman and Anderson stretched each car, cutting the frame in half, welding new pieces to the body, adding seats to accommodate 12 miners. Wickman bought out competitors and in 1916 formed Masaba Transportation Company. Two years later, had 18 cars and an annual income of $40,000 or $600,000 today. Wickman now lengthened his aim to carry passengers anywhere in the country on one ticket. At the end of World War I in November 1918, he sold his share of the business for $60,000 or $900,000 today, moved to Duluth, Minnesota, and started gobbling up his one-car competitors. He made a crucial move in 1925, buying a small line out of Superior, Wisconsin that was owned by Orville Caesar. Within a year, the duo formed Motor Transit Corp., the holding company that became Greyhound. At about that time, according to company legend, a driver was passing through a northern Wisconsin town when he saw the reflection of his bus in a store window. He said the bus looked like a Greyhound. The name caught on and Whitman adopted the slogan, Ride the Greyhounds. The company formally changed its name to Greyhound Corporation in 1930. Whitman was coasting. He'd married Olga Roden, a Swedish-American, and they had two children, but trouble was coming. After the stock market crash of 1929, Greyhound nearly went under. By 1931, his firm was over $1 million in debt. Whitman wasted little time steering his company straight. First, he gained exclusive rights to provide transportation at the 1933 Chicago World's Fair. Second, his firm was featured in the 1934 movie It Happened One Night, starring Clark Gable and Claudette Goldberg comedy about a spoiled heiress running away from her family who shares a Greyhound seat with a newspaper man won five Academy Awards. In a savvy PR move, Whitman's team parked Greyhound buses in front of theaters. Soon, thousands of people all over the country were hopping on Greyhounds in search of similar adventures. People got vicarious experiences by seeing the movie. Greyhound was one of the few transportation companies in the mid-30s that didn't go under. By 1934, Greyhound had pulled a U-turn with profits reaching $3.2 million worth $54 million now, almost double the previous year. In 1935, the net intake was $4.7 million, or $79 million now, and for the first time in history, more people rode buses than trains. In 1946, Whitman tapped on the brake, retiring as president to become chairman of the board. During a visit to Sweden, he was knighted by King Gustav V for serving the unserved. That was Greyhound's motto at the time. Whitman went home as a sort of conquering hero. By the time Whitman died at age 66, the transportation that he would help create was changing. Cars were cutting into bus travel, cheap air travel was on the rise, and soon Greyhound had to diversify into non-bus activity with food and insurance companies. The Dallas-based investments group led by Fred Curry bought the struggling bus company in 1987 and renamed it Greyhound Lines. Four years later, the company filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Today, Greyhound is owned by First Group, a leading transport operator in the United Kingdom and North America. It all started as a very local business. And that's a little bit about the history of Greyhound Lines. And that's about all I've got for this month on the podcast. Um, what I can tell you is that if you'd like to listen to or download previous episodes of the podcast, the easiest way to do that is to send me an email at ronnie, R-O-N-N-I-E, 13211 at gmail.com. I will send you the links, or you can search me out on Facebook using my name, Ronnie Greer, 
um, and I encourage you to send me email if you have questions, comments, suggestions for future episodes. Please feel free to send me email. Again, the address is Ronnie, R-O-N-N-I-E, 13211 at gmail.com. Until next time, have a safe and pleasant trip.